pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for introducing these two sacraments. Very meaningful. It speaks about who you are, what you have done, baptism and communion. I pray that today you will open our hearts, though some of us may be familiar, but I pray that you will still reveal it afresh, Father, so that we have a greater appreciation about what Christ has done for us. Pray that God, you will help us to be alert and, uh, and that God, we will also uh, spiritually ready to receive from you. I pray for your anointing and strength be upon Pastor Kokfai. As you share forth your word, I pray that you will make uh, your word alive through him. Fill him with your spirit and your power. We commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before I start, let me um, talk about this. Um, this was sent out in an email broadcast to uh, all the church members that we've got emails for. Um, I think we started a couple of years ago. Uh, and at the end of the year, it's a good time for us to do some reflection. And I hope that you will spend some time doing that. Uh, some of you may be examining your stock portfolio and see how it's gone up and come down, mostly come down, I think. But I think it's good to evaluate our own spiritual lives. And this is a tool that can help you. Um, if you don't have it, just uh, drop me or picture an email and we'll send it to you so that we don't have to print many copies. Huh? It's, it's to help you to evaluate what uh, your level of spiritual maturity is based on Second Peter chapter 1. So just want to highlight this. Huh? If, just, if you don't have it, just let me know. Um, and I made a, a very short video on baptism, uh, I think two years ago. Can't remember if I did play it, but the song is so nice, and uh, I thought we'd just enjoy this. This road is long and dusty Sometimes the soul it must be cleansed And I long to feel that water Rushing over me again Now with the old man Up with the new Grace to walk in the way of life Like a newborn baby Cradled up in the arms of the Lord I felt like a newborn baby Cradled up in the arms of the Lord That was my niece, Macy. I think really it, it's true. No? Felt like a newborn baby <laughs> Cradled in the arms of, of the Lord. So today we want to talk about uh, baptism and the Holy Communion. And what I want to do is to just tell you why we do what we do. I know some of us, uh, our, this is old material, we know it, but I think it's a, it's a good reminder. Uh, usually, four times a year we have baptisms on the first Sunday of March, June, 
September and December. So today is the first Sunday of the month. We should have had a, a baptism, but, uh, but because of the, the children's ministry wanting to do this fundraising exercise to bless other children, we postponed that to uh, next, next Sunday. But why do we do what we, what, we, what we do? Baptism is often referred to as a sacrament. A sacrament. So some of us may have heard of the seven sacraments uh, of the church. Uh, this is very popular in the Catholic Church. They call it the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. Uh, for us Protestant churches, we only have two. But what are these uh, seven sacraments? Okay, They are baptism, or they also call it christening because uh, they baptize babies, very, very young babies uh, who are months old. Uh, so they christen them first. And then the second uh, uh, sacrament is what is called confirmation or chrismation. So when they are maybe uh, around youth, uh, teenager age, they will have a formal, formal confirmation uh, exercise. And then come the Holy Communion, also referred to as the Eucharist. Uh, and then penance or what is called reconciliation, where actually you have to do some punishment. Okay, either you give, I don't know, some kind of punishment, uh, repeat 100 times Hail Mary or... Or, or in old days, even give some money uh, for, for penance, uh, to pay for your sins. And then anointing of the sick, uh, what is also called holy unction. And it's said anointing of the sick, but actually it usually refers to the last rites. Like somebody's just about to die, you quickly call a priest to come, and then the priest prays uh, so that you can usher this guy to heaven, that kind of thing. Uh, and then holy matrimony, we know that, marriage. Uh, holy orders is when you ordain uh, somebody into the priesthood and forever and after you call the guy a father, right? So, uh, holy orders. And these are the seven uh, sacraments and they were codified in what is called the Council of Trent. In uh, 1545 to 1563, they discussed and then they, 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 they wrote canons, okay, or rules of the church. So, canon number one says this, if anyone says that the sacraments of the new law, that is the seven sacraments, were not instituted by Jesus Christ our Lord, or that they are more or less than seven, uh, to wit, uh, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, extreme unction, order and, or, and matrimony, or even that any of these seven is not truly and properly a sacrament, let him be anathema. That means let him be cursed. So these are the seven and only the seven. And then came uh, canon number four uh, in the Catholic Church rules. It says, if anyone says that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary unto salvation, but superfluous, and that without them or without the desire thereof, men obtain of God through faith alone the grace of justification, though all are not necessary for every individual, let him be anathema. Okay, in all this old English, what it means is the Catholic Church says that the seven sacraments are necessary for salvation. We don't agree with that. We think that is very, very incorrect. For us, the Bible must take precedence over what the church says or even what the church writes down as canons or rules or law, or the Bible must take precedence even over what is preached from this pulpit. Any, what any pastor says cannot be against the Bible. And the Bible simply does not say this. It does not say that the seven sacraments are necessary for, for salvation. It's very good. It's very good to, to, to pray for the sick, for example. Uh, it's very good to have holy matrimony. You don't just go to ROM and get, get married, but you do it in church. 
before God, before many witnesses. All those are very good, but you are not saved by it. We are saved sola fide, the Latin for solely by faith. Faith alone, faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we are saved. So today we want to look at the two sacraments which we in the Protestant churches uh, believe that Jesus has left for us with very, very clear instructions, and that is baptism and Holy Communion. So firstly, baptism. There is a Jewish historical background to baptism, uh, or what is known as the, the, the ritual of being immersed in water. You'll find it in uh, the books of the Old Testament, in the Torah, in Exodus, in Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus. The Bible talks about washing, washing yourself before you enter into worship, washing yourself after you have like especially a skin, uh, a sickness, washing yourselves before you perform sacrifices. But note that the Bible says wash, only wash. But very soon, man made it into a more elaborate ritual. So what are these, these rituals? It's called the mikveh, M-I-K-V-E-H in Hebrew. And it means ritual immersion into water, the, the predecessor of baptism. So who gets to do this? For women, following menstruation. And following childbirth, you need to like immerse yourself. Uh, a, a Jewish woman will immerse herself into water like baptism. And even for, by a bride before the wedding. For men, men a lot more. Uh, on a, by a bridegroom on the day of his wedding, <coughs> you get baptized to wash and by a father before you perform circumcision on your son, uh, or by a priest before you invoke a priestly blessing on the people like, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, make His face shine upon you, you wash yourself before you invoke this blessing. On uh, Yom Kippur, uh, the Day of Atonement, one of the, the most important religious ceremonies of the Jewish uh, nation, uh, or on other Jewish uh, holidays, uh, depending on the custom of the community, or weekly before the Sabbath uh, by certain communities, and then other communities every day. Every day you perform a ritual baptism, washing. And then by both genders, whether you're a man or you're a woman, the moment you want to become as a Gentile, be, uh, worship the God of the Jews, or convert to Judaism, you need to be baptized or washed ceremonially. And, and so you will see uh, baptism pools or ritual baths uh, like this. I took this picture near the Qumran caves. Okay, beyond that you see it's a, it's a dead sea. Uh, this is where it is. And people would just like walk down the steps. It looks very like our baptism pool. Walk down the steps and then immerse yourself and then walk up and you would have been ritually washed and cleansed uh, for all those reasons that was uh, listed earlier. But just note one thing, it's especially important for a Gentile who wants to convert to Judaism. You must do this. Whatever the different communities of uh, uh, Jews you, you belong to. And, and there are many Gentile converts to Judaism, even in the Old Testament. If you think about uh, Uriah the Hittite, you're covering the tale of three kings. Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba. Uh, who got into a relationship with King David, Uriah the Hittite. Hittites are Gentiles. But he was in the kingdom of Israel's army and one of the, one of the key soldiers. So he would have 
uh, I think quite clearly he would have converted to Judaism uh, before being appointed into a responsible position uh, in, the, in the army. And it is super likely that he would have gone through a bath like this, a ritual immersion into water. So let's take a look at the Bible now. What is baptism? The first mention of baptism is about John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3, verse 6 says, Confessing their sins, they, the people, were baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And then later on, John the Baptist says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So the baptism through water is a baptism of repentance, and that is to turn away from sin and to turn towards God. Now the word baptism is baptizo in Greek. It's practically similar. Uh, even the spelling is probably missing by one or two letters. It simply means immersion. Immersion into water. That is baptizo, that is baptism. It is such a prominent word that it is not translated. You know, baptism, baptizo, same thing. It is not translated. It is transliterated. It's kind of like hallelujah. Hallelujah. There's no need to translate hallelujah. It means praise the Lord because everybody knows hallelujah. It's, you simply take the word across from uh, Hebrew into modern day terms. Or like the word amen. There's no need to translate, translate the word amen. It is just transliterated. Or even uh, maranatha, you know. Um, and you know, there is one denomination called the Baptist, right? So the Baptist makes a very big deal out of this word, huh? just like the brethren makes a very big deal out of brethren. Okay? And, and therefore, there's, if, if the word were translated, then they will not be called Baptists anymore, right? They will be called immersionists, right? Uh, and and definitely, definitely not sprinklists. Right? So it's just transliterated. So the first mention was by John the Baptist. And the last mention in the Gospels by the Lord Jesus. Where? In the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. First use, last use. And literally, Baptizo just means immersion into water. But there is also a figurative use of the word baptizo. And even Jesus uses it figuratively, like in Luke chapter 12, verse 50. Jesus says, But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. Jesus could have said, I have a suffering to go through, a death, a burial, a resurrection to undergo. But in one word, baptism, he covered everything. Suffering, death, burial, resurrection. Baptism, in this figurative sense, means the whole thing. And then, if you recall in Mark chapter 10, where James and John were asking Jesus, can I, can we, when you come in glory, can one of us sit to your left and one of us sit to your right? How did Jesus answer in Mark chapter 10, oops, verse 38? Jesus says, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Okay, like three times. As if they can't get it. Baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Same word, baptizo. 
So in one word, Jesus was saying, can you totally identify with me in my suffering, in my death, my burial, and in the eventual resurrection? James and John, can you identify with me all that way? And the Apostle Paul also used it figuratively in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2. Paul says they were all baptized. All the children of Israel were baptized into Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea. They went through the experience together, leaving Egypt, crossing the Red Sea into the wilderness. They were all together. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. We were all baptized into one body. So baptism, in this sense, talks about identification. We identify with Moses, with all the children of Israel. We identify into the one body, into the universal church. We identify with Christ, the head of the church. <coughs> there is a question. Why was Jesus baptized? Right? If baptism was for repentance, surely Jesus doesn't need to, to repent. Um, why was Jesus baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist? So you look at it in the figurative sense then. It is for identification. This was Jesus' first public act before he began his ministry. And then God, in a voice from heaven, says, It's my son in whom I'm well pleased. It was Jesus' willing identification again. Identification as the sinless Son of God, but also with the sinful people that He came to give His life, to save, and identification. And Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. He told John the Baptist, when John the Baptist said, hey, you should baptize me. Why should I baptize you? He said, permit it to be so now. Like this time, you just do it, John. Cousin, just do it. For it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John, it's to fulfill righteousness. That it is right to do so. It is right for me, the Son of God, to identify with my people. And these are the people that I'm going to save. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 makes it even clearer. But God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. It is right. It is the righteous thing to do. Yes. So that's, um, that's that. And the Bible makes it very clear because this is such an important sacrament that they want to explain it. The Bible explains it even more. The full doctrinal explanation is given by the Apostle Paul. And it, again, it is talking about identifying with Christ by being baptized into his, uh, into his death. So number one, identify with Christ by being baptized in His death. We find it in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We are identifying with His death. We are joined in a spiritual death with Christ our Savior. And when we die that one time in baptism, it gives a totally new meaning to our second death. That is the real physical death. Huh? There's a totally different meaning between a Christian and a non-Christian now when you die the second physical death because you've already died with Christ in baptism. Number two, it talks about identifying with Christ by being raised to newness of life. So, get up 
from the water, you are raised to new life. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, even so, we also should walk in the newness of life. When we are raised up, we have this new life. We are a new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And the life that we live now in the newness of life is what? Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's a new thing that God has given to us through the process of baptism. And then thirdly, it expresses our faith in God's power to raise Jesus from death. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, having been buried with him, having been buried with Jesus in baptism and raised with Jesus through your faith in the power of God who raised Jesus from the dead. So we exercise our faith. And that this is the real deal. That Jesus died and God was so powerful to raise him from the dead. God can raise me from the dead. And lastly, a symbol of Christian unity. Ephesians 4 verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So that is that unity that binds us together, universally, wherever uh, you have been baptized and you put your faith in Jesus. But baptism is not a requirement for salvation. It's never said so in the Bible. But baptism is so closely related to repentance and to obedience. In the Great Commission, Jesus commanded baptism. If you believe me, you will be baptized. It is a commandment. It is for us to obey. And, and it's a very humiliating thing to do, right? I mean, why would you just go and get yourself dunked in, in water? You don't even raise money for it, you know? Why, why would that be like that? And, and it's so public. And I believe that is the wisdom of God. God knew that there was something in this physical act of being immersed in water. It is at once uh, a teaching aid. It is an object lesson. It is a physical analogy of something that is spiritual. And like we good brethren like to say, it is an outward expression of our inward faith. I think many of us will know that, especially among Chinese or, or even Roman Catholics, whatever the race, and, or Hindus, you, maybe as a youngster, you go to church and then your parents uh, see uh, a Bible in your bag. It's like, okay, some of our parents may not be so happy about it, but it's okay, just go to church. Uh, uh, our religions teach you good, uh, learn something new, uh, and they're okay. And then you come home and it says, Dad, I want to be baptized. <gasps> That's when all hell breaks loose for, for certain families. It's certainly in my case. When I mentioned that I wanted to be baptized when I was about, I don't know, 18 or 19 years old, all hell broke loose. I quickly backed away. It's like nobody needs to, this to teach them. And like my parents, they've never been to church, but they, they seem to know this song, you know. They seem to know this song, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. There's somehow innately, they seem to know this 
this thing. And that's what baptism is. And I believe that is the, the wisdom uh, of God. No turning back. So you know the, the biblical reasons for, for baptism um, is, is an identification with the death, the burial, and the resur- resurrection of Jesus. Let's talk about some practical matters. Okay, What are the modes of baptism? You immerse or you sprinkle. For us, we go both ways. Huh? When you're too sick uh, to be brought out of the hospital to be immersed, we sprinkle you in the hospital. And maybe when you're very el- elderly, even near the poolside, we sprinkle you. But for some people, this is a very big deal, particularly um, certain elements of the Baptist denomination. So some years ago, I heard this sermon. I thought I saved it, but I cannot find it now uh, in all my MP3s. This Baptist preacher was just preaching and he said, he said, if somebody is sick in hospital, I will bring him out of hospital myself. I will bring him to the church and I will immerse him because we are Baptists. <laughs> My goodness, if this guy is like almost dying, you really want to put him through cold water and help him to die kind of thing. Uh, but certain denominations believe that, ah, that that is the only way. We don't think so. We don't think so, huh? Because there is a figurative meaning to baptism, okay? For us, it is symbolic, okay? It's a public confession, yes, so long as it's public. Another question is, can children be baptized? Um, I asked around the Brethren churches. Uh, I have regular fellowship with about seven or eight different Brethren church pastors. And uh, most of them come back to me, oh, we set a requirement for 12 to 15 years old. But... Uh, we also make special ex- exceptions for uh, whatever, whichever family who wants to have their children baptized if they don't meet this 12 to 15 years old. For us, actually any age, we only have two requirements, that uh, your Sunday school teacher and the parents both agree that this child may be five years old. Okay? It doesn't meet the requirement of 12 in other churches. Five years old and they truly, both of them, believe that the child understands and that we will baptize a five-year-old, five-year-old child. So we don't have a fixed uh, limit. But what about babies? What about babies in arm below one-year-old before they can even walk? Do we baptize babies? We don't. And I heard this said once that, I quote, the reason why the Roman Catholics baptize babies is the reason why we don't. <laughs> okay. Uh, so why? Why? Okay, there is this belief that... Um, well, actually, doctrinally, it's true huh? that every one of us is born with original sin. So the Roman Catholics believe that babies have original sin. And therefore, it, baptism is a requirement for salvation. If the baby is not baptized, if the baby dies, they will go to hell. That is the common belief. And that's why they quickly baptize the baby as soon as possible, so that if, if it happens that they die while they are babies, then they will not go to hell. Uh, actually, when I do more research into this, I find that it's somewhat mistaken. It is a common belief, I think, among many people that this is what the Roman Catholics believe. But in black and white, what I found is this. The Roman Catholic Church entrusts children who die without baptism to the mercy of God. I think that's quite, quite doctrinally uh, true, although I don't know for what reason. Everybody believes that the Roman Catholic thinks that babies who die without baptism uh, will go to hell. Or... What if I was sprinkled as a baby? Whatever church you come from, just sprinkle. Uh, because even in Protestant churches, 
uh, there are some denominations who uh, believe, uh, who baptize babies when they're very, very young. I think our church position will be this. When you reach an age of accountability or when you say you were baptized as a baby, you didn't know what was going on, then now you are 21 years old or 25 or 45 and you come to faith in Christ, I think it will be good for you to make a public confession. And you make that public confession through baptism uh, by, by immersion. Or if you're very, very old, you baptized as a baby when you're 8 months old, you finally became a Christian knowingly when you're 88 years old, and you cannot go through immersion, then you get sprinkled again. But it is a public confession of a faith that you now uh, can make a decision uh, for yourself. So that's what I think uh, we would do here in PPH. Okay, then another question is, what has membership in a church got to do with baptism? <laughs> it's got nothing to do with baptism. In fact, membership has got nothing to do with, with, with church, Right? The Bible doesn't prescribe that uh, you need to be a, a member of a church to sign a form and then you know, submit a photo or whatever. None of these are in the Bible. And by the way, also the Bible doesn't talk about Sunday school. But anyway, so what are the principles uh, for this? Um, I think it's just convenience. You know? Practically every church that I know has this baptism requirement for, for membership. And because it is an outward confession of an inward faith, right? So you need to confess the faith, otherwise nobody knows. So if you're not baptized, that means you have not like publicly confessed your faith. And so we use that baptism as a very convenient uh, sort of benchmark for church uh, membership. Uh, so for us, it's the same, right? So you want to sign up as a church member, you are responsible within the body, you can vote and, and, and do whatever, then you need to be baptized. But that there are other churches with even more requirements. I know certain churches where not only must you be baptized to be a member, but you must spend like, I don't know, 12 months or 18 months or 24 months as a, as a faithful member of a church with regular attendance. Then they will welcome you as a member. Okay? So we respect whatever the church uh, leadership decides. And then there is another church I know that you must go through what is called a breakthrough weekend before you're welcomed in as an official uh, member of the church because... They, they, they believe that you need to clear all your baggages that you might have, uh, past sins or associations or, or whatever baggage you might have brought from another church into this church and though they want you to go through a breakthrough weekend. So we respect that. But for PPH, very, very simple. Just baptism, a public confession of your faith. So why then are people not baptized? Okay, I'm not going to embarrass you by asking who among you not yet baptized or whatever reasons you have. Okay, these are the few reasons I can think of. If you can think of more, write to me, then I can build up this list. Uh, next time my sermon can be longer. So, <laughs> the first one, reasons for not being baptized. Okay, this, one, this picture I'm so proud of, right? Uh, maybe I call him Uncle Chieng. Chieng <laughs> baptized me and I baptized his son. So I'm looking forward to his son baptizing one of my own uh, in due course. Anyway, so one reason could be just ignorance. You're not taught. Huh? Maybe you're just two months old as a believer. You haven't read to the point of baptism yet in the Bible. You're not taught, so you don't know. Okay, so you're ignorant, so that's fine. You'll be taught the responsibility of the church to teach. Or a very common one, parents object, spouse object, children object. And I've seen all this. This is kind of difficult. 
So for example, in my case, I think probably I was about 18 or 19 years old. I told my parents I wanted to be baptized or hell broke loose. So I backed away and continued to pray because I want to honor my parents also. But there comes a point in time where you say you honor God or you honor your parents. Right? So you've got to make a decision. And I think a very convenient point would be like 21 years old when by, by law you are like independent and you can sign contracts and all that. I think that would be a very convenient uh, a point. Uh, but in my case, uh, God was very gracious. I know that I got no, no guts. So my younger brother, uh, sometime later, asked my parents and, and got the clearance. So I uh, follow along his coattails. So I got baptized. Um, but this is very important, I, I guess, for many of here, you who are uh, younger here, so below 21, for example, if your parents really, really object, let's, let's pray, okay? Don't fight immediately, okay? Don't fight immediately, right? So ask your parents and all hell breaks loose. So keep on praying, praying. And then by the time you're about 21, then at some point, you must tell your parents that I got to honor God. Okay, I prayed since I was 16 years old until I'm 21, but now I need to honor God and I want to be baptized and and then you make your stand uh, that way. Okay. Thirdly, indifference. Um, some people might say, only symbolic one. So what's the problem? What's the big deal? You know? So I've been living as a Christian unbaptized all these years. Huh? And if suddenly now I say I, I want to be baptized, people will say, oh my goodness, you're not baptized yet? They're very embarrassing, right? So they don't want to be baptized. Maybe that could be a reason. I don't know. Hope it's not you. Then, Defiance. Some people, you know, the more you ask them to be baptized, the more they say no. There are kind of people you know, right? The more you push me, the more I push back. Or it could be there is some sin in my life that I'm not willing to let go of, and therefore I don't feel good enough to be baptized. Could be like that. Okay, so that's something to tackle as well. And maybe uh, the last one I can think of is uh, the devil will do bad things to me. And it's more common than you think. I've come across this, and people say, you know, believe okay, but baptism, maybe not yet. You know? I'm afraid that the devil will disturb my children, the devil will disturb my husband, or, or whatever. And it's, sometimes I would want to say, like, well, like that, you're God too small. You know? But that's the wrong thing to say. I'm not very pastoral. Because it's, it's really inside, inside them. So it needs to be dealt with. Huh? You need to gently counsel and prove to them and, and, and tell them you believe in the Word of God, that surely God is not so small like that. Okay? So gently counsel the person through this, through this hurdle that often blocks them from baptism. So these are the five that I can think of. If there's any more, let me know. But I want to encourage you that as soon as you are able, then you ought to be uh, baptized. Right? It's a public confession of the faith that you have inside. I came across, I tell you, it's so wonderful, right? I think it was last week or a week ago. Uh, you know how things pop up on Facebook, right? So this thing popped up on Facebook uh, about baptism. I don't know why, you know, it's like it's quite long ago. And then I saw Diane's uh, remark, how can you watch this video and not want to get baptized? So how can? So that's why I want to show this, okay? I must make attribution, okay? This was done by Valerie Lim, somebody from our Lao Jen. Uh, but it was kind of long, so I shortened it a little bit, and, and then I put in my own music, uh, because after you cut, 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 the, the, the music doesn't work anymore, okay? So you watch this, it's really good. After you watch this, uh, you sure want to get baptized.
think cannot. I've got to play it outside. Let me continue, and then when you're ready, just wave to me. We'll, we'll, we'll show this again because it's so fun. Uh, I had to think long and hard about this, okay? Because especially for the first service. This one, I'm quite relaxed, okay? I'm playing this one. I was so afraid of showing it at the first service, but I did not receive a negative comment, so it's all right. Okay. Um, yeah, just play the MP4 file uh, from data, uh, the folder in data. Okay, uh, the second thing we want to talk about, the second sacrament we want to talk about is Holy Communion. Okay, there are many names for this term Holy Communion. Uh, it's called the Eucharist, it's called breaking of bread, and we brethren people, we like to use break bread, break bread, okay? That's our term, okay? Just like the Baptist says immersion, we break bread. Uh, or it's called Lord's Supper. And actually, if you look at the Bible, the teaching is so easy and so simple. Are you ready behind? Oh yeah, okay, let's do this. So creative, right? So creative. So you know where the next baptism will be. <laughs> okay, um, let's go to Holy Communion. So like I say, it's really quite simple. And Jesus initiated the Holy Communion. It is recorded for us in all four Gospels, so it's got to be very important. And the instructions laid out quite clear. Then on top of that, Jesus talks about the symbolism. I am the bread of life. If you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, and it freaked out some people. But he explained all that. Not only that, Paul then explained it comprehensively in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And what is this comprehensive explanation? First of all, 
The Holy Communion is a remembrance, is to remember what Jesus did for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread. When He had given thanks, He broke it and He said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, after supper, He took the cup saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So it's very, very simple. It's just to remember. As you think, come to the, the table later on, you think about Jesus. What is Jesus about? Why would He live heaven's glory and come down into a smelly stable and be born through the, the, the birth canal of a, a sinful woman and, and then to suffer and then to die for us, to be misunderstood, mistreated? Why? It's for us to remember. And secondly, Holy Communion is a proclamation. It's a proclamation of, uh, of hope. Because Jesus is coming back for, for us, that this life is not all there is uh, to it. Uh, if it is good, it's great, but much of life is, is suffering. For Verse 26, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So it's, it's a proclamation. Why do we take it together? Because we proclaim together. Why don't we just quickly take one piece of bread and a bit of wine and and do it at home as and when we like it in our quiet time. Typically, we don't. Although nothing to prevent you from doing that, but typically we don't. We do it as a church because it's a church-wide proclamation. And number three, the Holy Communion is for examination. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. That means a number of you have died. So, what is it? Again, it's very simple. Before you eat, before you drink, examine yourself. Examine ourselves to examine how we might have sinned against the Lord and therefore need confession and cleansing, how we need to rededicate ourselves uh, to the Lord. But there is this very twisted and ungodly thinking to say that, oh, this week, uh, today, I'm not worthy. Today, I'm not. Simply because this last week, Saturday especially or Friday, uh, I've been terribly bad. I'm, I'm not worthy. Last week was okay. Last week, I was worthy. Last week, I took communion. But this week, cannot. Where does this thinking come from? You are effectively saying, if you're like that, that Jesus' death and sacrifice is not good enough this week. Last week was okay, but this week, Jesus nailed to the cross, not good enough. The fact is, we are never worthy, right? The fact is, we are never worthy, but with Jesus in us, we are more than worthy. Our righteousness is Christ's righteousness, nothing of our own. So, so long as you examine yourself before the Lord, you say a simple prayer of confession, we are righteous before God. We are worthy to take the Holy Communion. It's kind of like your, your parents uh, invite you for, for dinner and then say, last week, okay, last week I came because I'm quite a good boy last week. But this week, I'm not a good boy. This week, I'm too ashamed to come before my father uh, when he invites me for dinner. That's the analogy. It cannot be like that, right? All you need to do 
is to ask God for forgiveness and he join in the meal. It's a fellowship meal. Let me now go off tangent a little bit and talk about this term called the healing in the atonement. Okay, how many of you have heard of this term, healing in the atonement? Oh, nobody heard then. I don't need to talk about it. But anyway, I, I really ought to because it's, it's, it's um, what, what should I say? It's, it's a very common teaching nowadays. And the teaching is this, that you can find healing for sickness in the communion. And it has even led one church that I know of to say that you should try to take the communion as often as possible. In fact, daily is better, so as to remain healthy and wealthy. And it is based on, actually it is based on one verse, uh, which is also re-quoted in the New Testament. And that one verse is Isaiah 53, talking about Jesus. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. This is a key term. By his wounds we are healed. It's repeated in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Repeated Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to Jesus and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. So yes, Jesus bore our sins. He carried our sins on the cross, nailed there. And he also carried our diseases. That's true. Because where did diseases come from? When God made man and God made the universe, he said it was good, it was perfect, there was no sickness. But when sin came in, sickness came in at the same time. So when Jesus died on the cross, he bore not only our sins, but the results of our sins, uh, and that is diseases, was put onto his body. And yes, we need to pray for healing. We are exhorted in the Bible to pray for healing. It is a very necessary thing to do, a good thing to do, a godly thing to do. We always say that doctors will treat you with the knowledge that they have, but ultimately, it is God who heals. God can heal you miraculously. God can also heal you through the avenue of uh, medicine. But this healing in the atonement doctrine has made communion into a superstitious ritual for health. And that is, take more, take more, and you'll be all right. Every time you take, it means your, 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 your diseases will be put on, on to Jesus and you will be healthy and wealthy. What I would suggest we do is simply follow the Bible. Let's not get so complicated in our, our Christian living. What does the Bible talk about in healing? Pray. James chapter 5. Approach the elders of the church who will anoint you with oil. Confess your sins. We often leave out a part about confession of sins to one another and then pray. And the prayer of the righteous man availeth much. Pray in faith, you get well. It's not because the elders are more righteous. It's because of the righteousness of Christ that we are all covered under the righteousness of Christ. Come for the healing prayer service. We make it a, a, a point every month to have a healing prayer service so as to do this. And why we, do we need to reinterpret the Holy Communion 
into such a thing. What is the Holy Communion for? It's comprehensively explained by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, right? It is for remembrance, it is for proclamation, and it is for examination. It doesn't say it is for healing. Although Christ bore our sins and our diseases on His body on the cross. Okay, now let's talk about some practical matters then. How often should we take the Holy Communion? Uh, since it is not directly for healing, then no need to take every day. Lah. Okay, that much we know. But how often? Uh, a typical Brethren Church does it every, every week. So here, uh, our second service is not so typical. Uh, once a month. Um, let me ask you, first of all, as good brethren people, whether you know your Bible. Huh? The Bible says, uh, for as often as you meet, you shall take the Lord's Supper. Where does this come from? Actually, it doesn't come, uh, I'm being facetious, it doesn't come from the Bible. But if you ask around old-time brethren people like me, uh, in the 50s, uh, they will think that it comes from the Bible. But it doesn't. It's just that somehow through history, we twist get twisted in our remembrance of the Bible. What it does say is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So the Bible actually does not have a prescription for the frequency of taking the Holy Communion. It doesn't. But whenever you take it, whenever you eat and drink, then you must what? Examine, remember, proclaim. You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. But there is a description in the Bible that talks about the Holy Communion, and that is found in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. It says, On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. And so, it is a description. It is not a prescription. So, based on that, the Brethren Church decided to simply follow. Right On the first day, of the, of, the, of the week. So every week, we have Holy Communion. But it doesn't tell us uh, how, how often. But so long as when you do it, you examine, you remember, you proclaim. Another question, can the non-baptized take communion? What do you think? Some churches will insist on this. In PPH, we don't. In fact, I think many brethren churches insist on this, that if you're not baptized, then you better don't take the, the, the communion. Uh, we don't. For us, we just say sola fide, you know, the Latin for solely faith, faith alone. If you have faith in Jesus, you can take the Holy Communion. Okay? I, I don't know your particular situation. Maybe you are 16 years old and you have this long-going fight with your parents over baptism and you think it's not the right time yet and all that. No, then I, I can well understand. Okay? So we, we simply, if you believe in Jesus, you know that He has forgiven your sins. We take the Holy Communion as the universal body in Christ. I'll take it together. Another question. Can children take the Holy Communion? Uh, here, we leave it to the parents. As with baptism, I think if the parents feel that this five-year-old child or even this four-year-old child really understands what's going on and wants to participate in the body of Christ in taking the Holy Communion, then we leave this to the parents because I do not want to be the vetting agency for communion takers or non-takers. You know, I came across one church where the pastor says, okay, all of you, any of you believe you have the gift of tongues, come to my office. I want to hear. 
then I will tell you whether yours is real tongues or not real tongues. I say, hey, please, I don't want to go there, okay? Uh, so it's between you and God. So in the same way, this one we leave to the parents. If you think that your child understands what's going on, it's a very good thing, even if the child is only like five years old. Okay? Remember I said that um, you know, man always makes things complicated, not only in baptism, but also in Holy Communion. And you've heard of the term uh, transubstantiation, any of you? Transubstantiation. Okay, let me read to you. According to Roman Catholic teaching, when the priest consecrates or prays over the bread and wine, they are supernaturally converted into the flesh and blood of Christ. That is the belief. That is transubstantiation. Uh, and therefore, you find that in, in these churches, they're very, very careful over the bread um, and the wine because they're afraid of spilling it. It's like, wow, you spilled blood, uh, the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus. And one of the things that happens is that uh, when there is the wine left over, it doesn't get poured away. How can you pour the, wine, uh, the, the blood of Jesus into the long tongue, right? Cannot. So the, the priests get to drink everything uh, towards the end. <laughs> uh, I think one fringe benefit But that is not our stand. Huh? That is not our stand. Because for us, it is symbolic. It is symbolic. But there are some people who, who want to find a position between the transubstantiation doctrine and over the symbolic. They think that symbolic is too symbolic. You know? So they have one middle ground. The middle ground is consubstantiation. Okay? I really don't understand what it means, but it basically says that the flesh and the blood is present at the same time as the bread and the wine. Okay, go figure. <laughs> that is the middle position, but for us, we think of it as symbols. We call it the emblems. Why? Because we've got to go back to the purpose, right? The purpose is not to take flesh as though it was medicine or, or, or blood as though it was medicine that you can wash away our sins. The purpose is remembrance, proclamation, examination. So on that basis, we believe it is symbolic. If you don't like the word symbols or symbolic, then it doesn't matter. Lah. So this is the, the blood of Jesus. This is the, the body of Jesus. Take, take him, feed him in your hearts and all that. So that's fine. Okay? So other practical questions is, who can administer the communion? In certain churches, only ordained ministers, only when you carry the title reverend. Okay, you must pass a certain test and all that. So what kind of a church is PPH? Brethren. Right? Last week, I think you saw that long video, the 12-minute video. What is one of the brethren distinctives? Priesthood of all believers. That means everybody is a priest. Okay? You don't call me father. Right? Although I'm like a full-time staff, we are all a priest. So anyone can administer the Holy Communion. You are an elder, you're a church member, you're a deacon, or you may be a female worship leader in a short skirt. And that was the only one time I heard some complaint. Well, not really complaint. Somebody just gave me feedback. Hey, who is this young worship leader in a short skirt? Lah? Wow, she can administer Holy Communion. Lah. That was many, many years ago. Lah. I don't know who. I can't remember who it was. But I would say, yes, the skirt we can do something about. Next time you ask her, don't wear so short. Lah. <laughs> but any lady, sister, also can administer Holy Communion. So that is our position as priesthood of all believers. And on that basis, uh, I also would want to encourage uh, uh, cell groups 
to have Holy Communion together, so long as you achieve the purpose of examination, proclamation, and remembrance. Huh? Uh, I know some adults have asked me in the past, hey, this cell group doing Holy Communion, uh, can I? I said, yes. Yes, on the basis of 1 Corinthians 11, right? Examination, remembrance, proclamation. So, let's have communion together. Um, I know you've been sitting down a long time. Let's stand up and sing this great song. As we drink this cup, we honour you. So this is a sacrament. This is a symbol of honouring the Lord. service to now serve the bread and the wine. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. So let us examine ourselves. Let's cast ourselves before the throne of grace. Instead of turning away, let us draw near to God and He will draw near to you. is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we can be righteous before the Lord. We can be worthy before the Lord because we recognize the body of the Lord. This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so let's remember. Let's remember all that we have learned from the Gospels. The moment of Jesus' arrival at Christmas through through his life of example his life of grace and love and teaching into his sufferings being misunderstood being plotted against into his scourging and then his death Praise God for His resurrection. We remember. Now we proclaim, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So let's take this bread. Let's eat it as an act of proclamation together. We drink this cup together to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Lord, we thank you for your wisdom. You are high above, and yet you instituted these two very simple sacraments that means so much even to non-believers. Thank you for baptism, the very physical act that enables us to identify with your death, burial, and resurrection. We thank you for the Holy Communion, a simple piece of bread that tells us of a body painfully broken, a taste of wine, tells us of the bitterness of your suffering and that you did it for us. So as the old liturgy goes, we feed on you in our hearts 
with thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, for your covenant with us. We remember and we are grateful. As we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.